Kia I'm Maria. I'm Māori. I'm Pakia. And I'm Kate. And I'm Iranian-Australian. And you're listening to Being Biracial. The podcast all about navigating the world as a biracial person. We want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the unceded sovereign lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We offer our respect to the elders of these lands, past, present and those yet to come. And we also acknowledge traditional custodians from the lands where this podcast is reaching you. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land and as we're making a podcast that is essentially about storytelling, we're really grateful for the first storytellers of this land. So Today we're going to be chatting to Christina Naroy, who is a Footscray local, and this, of course, is one of our Maribyrnong community stories. Christina has worked for a number of years in public health and is also the culinary curator at Entree Panayas, which is a group of Filipino women working together to promote Filipino culture through food, arts and gathering. As a side note, Christina also loves tennis. Which obviously Maria is thrilled to be able to talk about today. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Kate and Maria. Thank you for coming in. So excited to talk about tennis. (laughs) (laughs) First, let's talk about what your mix is. What is your mix, Christina? So my father is ethnic Hungarian from former Yugoslavia, which is now Serbian land. And my mum is from the south of the Philippines, um, from the island Mindanao, and she is also part Subanen, which is uh, an indigenous tribe of the region. Expand on indigenous people in Philippines for us, please. The Philippines is a, a very large collection of islands, and there are lots of different ethnic groups that are in the Philippines, believe mm-hmm. Believe it or not, um, it's not really known too much mm. outside of the Philippines. My mum's father's mum is uh, Subanen, which are the indigenous people of uh, Sambuanga del Norte in Mindanao, which is the large southern island of the Philippines. And the Subanen tribe is quite separate to the, the rest of the people living in that area. Um, and are mountain people that pretty much live off the land and are quite agricultural as well. It's something that I've only really discovered recently. Um, I think it's only been the last 10 years that my auntie had a conversation with my my grandfather, my lolo, and um, he explained that. And it's something that is not celebrated, and I think that's why it hasn't been shared too much, because in the Philippines, obviously, because of colonisation, mm. um, you know, to be Indigenous of the Philippines um, is not considered to be a highly ranking in the class system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm thrilled to know that. I, I love that I have a deeper connection to the land where my uh, family is from. Is it considered, you know... Desirable. Yeah, better to be closer to whiteness or um, closer to 
like Anglo culture is that where those the point of difference and the point of tension comes between those groups of people? So in the Philippines, um, the the impact of colonization from European countries and the United States, um, and also in bringing Christianity, it really has ingrained a culture of um, white is best, essentially. Mm. So for you to associate with European uh, cuisine, culture, to look European is all what's desired, essentially. And in that, it has made what is very traditional Filipino seem to be very low class. So that's in how you look if, you know, a lot of Indigenous tribes in the Philippines have very curly hair, but to have straight hair, to have light skin, to eat more uh, meat is seen to be very affluent, um, to eat less vegetables and um, seafood is more associated to traditional culture. So um, there is a, a big movement post-colonisation of um, striving to be more European and white. How does that play out in religion, do you think? My observation of Christianity in the Philippines is very aligned with that same um, notion of white is best because the the statues that are actually in churches, um, the statues are actually painted with white as their skin. And even in my experience of growing up as a Catholic in Australia, the the statues look very different actually and I think are more closely reflected of the skin tone of those people. Um, so essentially, you know, you have a whole gathering of people that have very dark skin and look nothing like what the statues or the, the people that they're worshipping. So it is ingrained in religion and in culture. So there are there's big ramifications of what this means um, in today's culture and what's passed on through generations from food, from everything, like how you live your life, how you want to look. And so it's, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but it is it is quite sad, I think. And I feel really passionate about um, embracing our brownness Um being a brown girl myself, even though I am mixed, I I do feel really strongly about when I am in the Philippines to break down a bit of that. And I do come from a space of being a foreigner and I think that my voice is quite influential, especially in my family. So talking to my family about embracing their backgrounds and Looking how we do look is really important to me and I, I love that I've had more of those conversations as I've become older. Tell us a little bit more about your mum and her family and what her life was like growing up. So my mum, my beautiful mum, she is the eldest of 12, <laughs> and which is very common. <laughs> um, yeah, she's the eldest of 12, so... We, my family, uh, lived 
in the area of Zamboanga del Norte, but moved around a bit. And uh, my family lived off uh, coconut plantations for their livelihoods. So um, my mum had quite a hard life, Mm. which is not uncommon for people from the Philippines, but particularly for people living in provincial areas. The, um, I mean... It's it's a tricky thing to say. Financially, um, they struggled a lot more um, than, you know, people that aren't farmers. But people that come from, uh, you know, farming backgrounds tend to live a lot better lives than people living in the city. So as much as in the Philippines it seemed to be very low class to be a farmer, people are living great lives. Like they've got food on the table, they're eating great food, eating lots of vegetables, living off the land, not eating a ton of meat, which, you know, is back to bite people. It seemed to be, you know, great to be eating lots of meat, but it's not good for you. So I think that they lived a great life. But my my mum's uh, father, my grandfather, did have problems with alcoholism, um, which is quite common in the Philippines as well, and that really impacted um, the struggle. Mm. So yeah, my mum really needed to raise herself and her siblings. So she really was, you know, Miss Independent and (laughs) I'm really lucky to have her as my mum because she's raised little Miss Independent me. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, she, um, you know, she moved away from home really early. Um, I think she was 17 or 18, which is very early, um, and worked a lot. So, um, yeah, she was supporting lots of her siblings to go to school. She went to university and um, bought her own house. Go mum. And so when did she migrate to Australia? My mum migrated, I think she migrated in 86, I think. Yeah, my brother was born in 87. And so part of her migrating was to be with your father or was it? Yeah. So my mum met my dad through uh, online dating of the 80s, <laughs> which apparently happened through, I think she said through newspaper. Um, so they were pen pals for quite some time before my dad went to the Philippines to meet my mum. And yeah, I've actually read their their letters and they're so sweet and yeah, it was I'm I'm feel like it's pretty awesome that my mum and my dad found each other. They they yeah, they they love each other so much and um yeah, they there are surprisingly a lot of similarities in my dad's experiences of being um a refugee into Australia. Um but also my it's pretty Remarkable, actually. So in the Philippines, we call um, mum and dad the words nanai and tatai. Um, and it's sometimes extended to elder people as well. So like sometimes you might even call your, your grandparents nanai and tatai. And in my dad's family, it was like a family thing that you would call your grandparents nana and Tata. Oh my gosh. And I don't actually know, like, I know that Nana is quite 
similar to Nana, but it's not pronounced Nana, it's pronounced Nana. And But Tata, they lived on opposite ends of the world. Like I, it's pretty freaky that they share that. So that's pretty special. First of all, love letters. What a precious thing to have in your family and to be able to access and see the love between your parents before they even met. Like that's so beautiful and I just – Love that, your family. Like, yes. I can't believe they let you read the letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, they were legit. It was, you know, like, I've done this. Like, this is what I've been up to in the last few weeks. And it was cute. It was cute. Thought, uh, just a little window into their lives at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so you said that your dad went over to the Philippines to meet your mum after they'd been, you know, writing these letters back and forth. Where... Was he before he went over? Was he in Australia? Yes. Yeah. So my dad, he left. So my dad is from uh, Gombosh in former Yugoslavia, now Serbia. They, they, as in his mum and his dad and his auntie, they walked uh, across the border from Croatia, what's now Croatia, to um, Italy, to Trieste. Um, and then they lived in Italy as refugees in interesting large halls full of people, <laughs> full of refugees. And when you were a refugee in wherever, um, a lot of the time you worked. <laughs> and oh. so they worked labour jobs um, but were treated well. There was the commonality of um, between cultures was religion. If, if there's anything that positive that religion has um, given in the world it's yeah throughout migration it's really helped a lot Mm. Um, even when they they came to Australia to Sydney by boat um, and even their experiences in settling in Australia there were a lot of people that really helped them because there was a shared uh, religion of Catholicism. It sounds like your, your dad's family has had a bit of a time, a bit of a time moving through these kind of like war-torn, borderless countries. What was his experience coming to Australia? So you said that he was kind of welcomed in by religion, by way of religion. What my dad has told me, um, the experiences that he has had in being ethnic Hungarian is actually quite different to being Hungarian from Hungary because essentially they were a minority group of former Yugoslavia which got ripped to shreds. Yeah, my dad definitely had that experience of not really belonging to a country essentially. So he'd sort of be ethnic Hungarian but he's not really Hungarian but he's from, you know, all of Mm. these different places. So I think that that played a really big part of my dad and my mum really understanding each other, especially when my mum migrated to Australia because she obviously um, had her own experiences, even in the Philippines, as being considered second class. Um, In the Philippines, you know, if, if you are from a poorer background, you're seen as second class. If you... Um, even just come from the provinces, from even from Mindanao, the 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 big island where my mum is from is seen to be a dangerous place. 
even when she did migrate to Australia, she was somewhat marginalised um, within her own community, um, as well as being, as well as experiencing some judgment of migrating through marriage mm. within the Filipino community. It is seen, it isn't spoken about too much, but it is seen to be that you've sort of cheated migration because it was an easy path for you, which you could say is somewhat true. But sometimes, you know, if you have even the even the slightest glimpse of chance of migrating, in some instances it does really help if you're sort of well off in the first place. Mm. Um, and that's not to discredit the incredible efforts that a lot of people have um, endured to migrate to Australia. Um, but it is something that, yeah, my mum experienced. So, you know, in my mum being married to my dad, my dad was really accepting and really celebrated my mum's culture. And I feel really lucky that I, that's the culture that I was brought up in that my mum didn't feel oppressed and she didn't feel the pressure to assimilate because essentially my dad didn't necessarily feel part of Australian culture as well. So, um, yeah, it was it's sort of there's a, a lot of common ground there. Mm. We're, which is not surprising to hear, which is lovely to hear, but for a lot of people looking at them as a couple and her having migrated through marriage and stuff like that, were there lots of, you know, really rude and awful stereotypes kind of pushed upon your family? Did you find that when you were growing up? It's not something that I noticed much when I was younger because we lived in Sydney, mm. multicultural Sydney. We lived in the western suburbs and, you know, that's where it's at. The western yeah, most <laughs> like the western suburbs here. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a, the safe zone for um, migrants. So I never felt that it was something that, um, I didn't feel like there was discrimination that I experienced, but I have no doubt that there were experiences that my mum and my dad did have um, coming from a mixed marriage. But when I was a bit older, um, you know, sometimes I would walk with my dad and people would say that, oh, are you, are you would refer to me as my dad's wife. Vomit. No. Yeah. You? Yeah. Oh, that stereotype runs deep. Yeah. I mean, my parents happen to be very close. They're two years apart in age. Um, And that's not to discredit people that have bigger gaps in age in marriages, but there is a part of me that does get a little bit defensive. Like, no, you know, my parents, you know, they love each other so much and they have so much common ground. And as much as you might think my dad is like a white man, he's not, you know, he's had experience, like he's a refugee in Australia and, mm. and yes, absolutely understands how it feels to be um, a minority. So, yeah, I think it took me a little while to burn off a little bit of the bitterness um, of experiences that I had over time um, and just to, you know, pick my battles where they're more worth. Mm. 
like put mm. my energy into spaces. Like if I'm in the Philippines and I'm talking with my family, to put in the energy there and the hard work to talk about the issues that are very oppressive. Mm. Like, you know, having dark skin is not desirable. Things like yeah. that. Yeah. Mm. That's happened to me, actually. People assuming that I'm my dad's wife, really? particularly when we travel. Um, and I think maybe partially because we have the same last name, mm-hmm. but my mum doesn't. Yes. And and then I think it's also it's such a judgment call that people make about you know the fact that we couldn't possibly be related, which is just so silly because in so yeah. many ways, like I do look like my dad, um, but they. They couldn't possibly imagine a world in which this man has produced this daughter and yes. so the only possible reason could be that they're married. Yes. <laughs> which is oh, absurd. Goodness. Yucky. No. It is one of those and it feels so gross. Yeah, it, it, it's insulting. I've, I've felt really insulted. Not directly insulted. I felt like it was very insulting of my father. Um, so I felt more upset about what it meant for my dad rather than what it meant for me. Yeah, it's, it hasn't happened too much where it's actually been said, but I'm aware that people may think it. How has being part of Entree Panayas, did I say it right? Yeah. <laughs> How has that, I guess, helped you feel to find your place? So... Yeah, being part of the entrepreneurs has been actually quite a challenge for me because um, I've always felt quite not a part of or accepted by Filipino community. And this is across a lot of um, different backgrounds. The, the use of the word half is used like you're a half. And very unintentionally, it's very hurt. I actually find it really hurtful. Um, and I use, I describe myself as being mixed. And the thing that I get asked about often is, do you feel more of one or the other? Mm. And people cannot accept that I genuinely feel equally both. But I've found a space where I have sort of needed to like in my own little head like stomp my feet and be like, no, I'm actually really proud of being both and that's okay. Um, And I did have a little bit of um, imposter syndrome being part of the entrepreneurs, which I still battle now because of my experiences of not feeling um, accepted by the Filipino community. And, And, you know, in the Philippines I'm seen to be white um, which <laughs> a what? <laughs> I'm seen to be a white girl, and that's a story in itself. You know that that's a debacle in itself. Um, not feeling I don't identify as being white. My experiences, for sure, do not make me feel that way. Um, but when I go to the Philippines, I'm seen as the white girl. But there's a lot of um growth that we all have in between you know each other in the entrepreneurs like um there's a lot of healing for me not necessarily to feel accepted as such but more to 
be seen um, that I identify as both Filipino and Hungarian equally, um, and that's great. And, I mean, my space that I bring to the Andre Penais is food. So um, I have a lot of wonderful memories of food growing up, both Filipino and Hungarian food. So it's a, it's a space for me to feel um, like I can celebrate that and share that. And for someone to be representing um, the mixed community in the Filipino community, but also being part of the entrepreneurs, I really feel very, very passionate about um, having that representation of the diversity of the Philippines, not only just being a mixed person, but um, my family um, from the south of the Philippines, from very provincial areas, and that being represented in food um, and also uh, in culture as well because globally, I mean, all around the world and in the Philippines, um, you know, the northern cuisine of the Philippines and urbanised food that's eaten mostly in, in urban areas is what's celebrated. It seemed to be what's affluent and higher class. Uh, I feel a really important role in in promoting the diversity that I bring, which isn't the whole diversity of the Philippines. It's just one little glimpse of it. Tell us about Hungarian food and Filipino food in your house while you were growing up. So growing up, goodness, my I've thought about this quite a lot and I've noticed that in households, usually whatever the family will eat is usually influenced by what the dad wants to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so when my mum got married to my dad, my grandmother, my dad's mum, took it upon herself to make her a little Hungarian wife. So <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so my mom my mom learned how to cook all the Hungarian foods and we ate lots of Hungarian food growing up um at home. And so I would say you know in a week it would probably be about 5 to 6 out of the days would be Hungarian food and one of the days would be Filipino food. And they would never mix. Oh. The only way that we would ever mix cuisines is there would be a rice option to accompany the the stews, the Hungarian stews. But other than that, they would never mix. We would never have a Hungarian dish and a Filipino dish on the same table. And my grandma, was she's an excellent cook, and we would usually have our birthdays and Christmas and everything at her place um, and every weekend actually. So she would cook, she only cooked Hungarian food. So we ate Hungarian food on those special occasions. But if my mum happened to throw a party for us, then it would be 100% Filipino food. So you lived in Sydney for a while. 
um, have you always grown up and lived in Sydney? No. So we lived in Sydney until I was about seven. My my For one, my brother had really bad asthma um, and just wanted to escape the, the smog mm. of Sydney. But my dad also, his family back home um, had really a lot of success in growing grapes to make wine and grew a lot of fruit to make alcohol. <laughs> and my dad had this dream of of going back to that life, even though he was very young. But when they did migrate to Australia, they also did do that. They went into farming um, in Victoria, actually, in, in the Shepparton area. There was a lot of European migrants that started farms in that area. So my family was one of those. And so, yeah, my dad was fed up with city life, wanted to move somewhere to have a farm, a grape farm. So we lived uh, outside of Nildura in northwest Victoria and we lived in the outskirts of a little town called Merbeen and we lived on a 10-acre farm which had sultanas and citrus. So I spent a lot of my school holidays and weekends <laughs> tending to the farm, <laughs> which I love. Like I, I hated it at the time, mm. but I love it as an adult that I had those experiences. I, I loved the experience of living on the farm and what it taught me. Um, but living in a very small rural town um, had its experiences as well. I was very very dark skin as a kid, mm. um, mostly because I was outside. Working outside, yeah. <laughs> and also because I played tennis and that was like, ah, oh, that was such a beautiful um, gift that my parents had enrolled me into and I had to play tennis. I couldn't play any other sport. Um, but it was it was great because, you know, tennis is a very – independent sport mm. you can you can get a little bit trapped in that space even not being um you're not playing like a team sport yeah I mean my experiences in playing tennis really taught me to be very like discipline and um persistence can really achieve great results <laughs> and can achieve things that you can't achieve elsewhere um I very much felt like I was the short, dark-skinned girl. There weren't many, there was very little diversity, incredibly very little diversity at my school. And even as a an adult, very recently I found out that my school was actually, um, had a reputation for being a racist school. Ah! <laughs> and you went there the whole time. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. So I have other friends that are, uh, you know, culturally diverse um, that grew up in Mildura. Well, and we interviewed Azaminya who who had a wonderful experience growing up in Mildura. <laughs> so it's really interesting to have your experience be like, no, it was not it. <laughs> it was not it. Azzy's friend actually told me at her wedding that her parents were looking at places for – she's mixed and – we're looking at potential schools to enrol her into and I think did a little tour or something of Mabine and was like, hell no, I'm not sending my daughter <laughs> Anyway, so I've, I had some interesting experiences there which did make me feel very 
unaccepted, just to, to put it that way. And, yeah, I think tennis was a means of me that I felt like I could crush it a little bit with my fitness and my, <laughs> you know, I could beat, I could beat other people. Mm. Um, so that shaped me a lot. And, yeah, I think being – I was forced into a space where I didn't have a lot of um, social networks that has uh, shaped me into being quite an independent adult. Well, and I feel like we talked about religion being something that brings communities together. I feel like sport is as well, even though, that, even though as you said, tennis is a very independent sport – did you feel like you were able to be seen for your skills as opposed for your race? Yes. Yep. That was the thing. Yep, absolutely. And I played all right. I mean, we went to – I did make it – I did play much better at singles and I did go to some, you know, regional that was beyond that area. Um, but, yeah, flaked under pressure. I mean, goodness, I watched um, King Richard – yeah. The Williams sisters uh movie recently and far out. I could as much as I'm obviously not a black um person living in America, which is very very different to my experiences. I did see a lot of alignments with what I experienced growing up and I wanted to cry the whole damn movie. Mm. Like it was it was intense. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I, I got a lot of fulfillment out of playing tennis. I feel like a lot of what you're saying resonates with me and it, and I agree with what Maria said about sport being a connector, um, in otherwise very white spaces. And it's something that's come up a bit in some of our interviews. Um, like Damien, for Mm. instance, talked about how like soccer was kind of a gateway to acceptance Mm. as like a little mixed Chinese, Malay, German kid. Like that's how in the playground, you know, you kind of proved that you weren't just one of the Asians. Mm. And I feel like, Tennis was that for me too. It also, like you brought up the Williams sisters, I think for me Australian sport was incredibly white. Yes. I didn't have any examples of anybody on television in football, cricket, um, any anything, basketball, like every single person I think of is, is white or Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole other part of Australia's racist mm, yes. um, engagement with Aboriginal sports people that we can't even get to. Um, but, like, seeing people like the Williams sisters, and I feel like I grew up with them because, you know, that's our generation essentially, um, was such a different example for me of of who an athlete was mm. at that time. And as you say, like, I am not black and I am not from America either and it's so insane that they've had such a big big impact um, on us and on communities of people then who who wanted to and could play tennis because now when I look at the people who are Mm. coming up in tennis, there are so many mixed-race tennis players. It looks entirely different to what it did in the 90s. Yes, absolutely. I could cry just thinking about that movie. Like the, there's certain scenes in it that, you know, even when I went into comp, 
it was going into comp. Just everyone was, every single person was white. Every single coach, every single player, all the families, everything. I definitely did not feel celebrated in that space because I was in a different area. I didn't know anyone there. It was a, it was not easy. Mm. And uh, tennis, the stereo, like it's down to the stereotype that, like when you play tennis, you wear white. Mm. Like at Wimbledon, yes. you still have to wear white to yes. to compete in the tournament. Which, just as an aside, as a woman who menstruates, mm. <laughs> like, are you kidding me that yes. I'm going to be playing a crazy professional sports? And I'm, I'm going to have my period and I'm going to have to wear a white fucking skirt? Like, no. Yes. But it's it like down to that. Like, mm. Yes. Yeah. And I think just generally with women in sport as well, it's quite uh, medieval in the sense that it's as a means of entertainment rather than it being um, an appreciation for strength and athleticism. Mm. And... Uh, I mean, Kate, we've spoken about this a little bit, about there is more female tennis players um, and generally athletes that are celebrated now that goes far beyond it being that. So that's a positive. Mm, But it makes me really excited because I think I see Naomi Osaka, um, Ons Jabeur, Leila Fernandez, Emma Raducanu, like this whole cohort of um, tennis players who are not white, who are doing incredibly well in um, this sport. Like Naomi Osaka is one of the most marketable tennis players and I just could not have imagined that that was ever possible when I was a kid. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that as much as the Williams sisters were – they represented some diversity. It was quite a contrast between white people and black people. Like Mm. there was nothing really in between for a lot of people like myself. I don't think that I really necessarily related to the Williams sisters. It was what they represented is what I could connect to. But now it's completely different. Tennis podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm interested to know how you went from being a regional tennis star (laughs) to the big city girl that's sitting in front of us today. Um, I did move away from home very, very early. I moved three days after my 15th birthday. Oh, shit. Um, And I moved to Melbourne. So I think essentially I was just like, I'm just done with this lack of diversity Mm. and I just need to be back where I belong in the city. And, yeah, like we would travel back to Sydney um, and I'd feel at home. I'd feel like, oh, there's lots of people who look like me mm. <laughs> and people don't look at me like I'm trying to steal shit. I roll. <laughs> so I, when I was 14, I met a lovely boy. He sort of lived between Mildura and Melbourne and because I was so independent in my thinking Mm. and was I didn't feel the norm and society didn't really well my norm of going to that school that I went to um 
it's there was sort of no place for me mm. that I there was no need for me to conform. So one day I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go because I don't like it here. Yeah. So I don't care about the rules. Yeah. So I I did a little bit of a mix of staying with my dear friend um, for about a year, but that was that was a tricky. It was tricky. I was 15 and, you know, I had Centrelink and I was enrolled into VCAL. I, I left the school system, thank God. Um, that was great. And then I got connected into um, Melbourne City Mission because I was identified as, as someone, as a young person at, at risk, yep. um, which if people aren't familiar with that term, it's essentially saying that you're one step away from being a homeless person. Yep. And so they said, look, I think we need to get you into some accommodation so that you can get some more stable accommodation. And I lived in a refuge for a few weeks um, and I met some really interesting people in there. It was great. And then I, by 16, I had my own little apartment in Chinatown and I lived on my own for quite a few years there um, and was able to, you know, get my shit together and finish year 12 at um, CAE, the Centre mm-hmm. for Adult Education. Which That's is in a, the city, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I finished uh, year 12 and decided that I wanted to make a career of helping people somehow. So I gravitated to health. Yeah. And I got into uni, finished uni and did my thing and made my parents proud, which was important to me because I felt like I had a bit of making up to do mm. after leaving home early. And they were so proud of me, actually. Um, and I think it's because they essentially gave birth and raised their own little mini themselves. They had so many experiences of, of the same thing that I essentially went through myself not feeling accepted in community, not really having a place to fit. But it's a – I am appreciative for it. Um, I don't think that I would – I absolutely would not be the person I am today. Um, and it's given me a lot of strength. Mm. It sounds like a lot of empathy as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, I. It's really lovely to hear um, instances of – systems and supports like that working. I feel like we've skirted around it a bit, but can you tell us a bit about like what was it like going to your school? Um, what what happened essentially? So when I moved to, when we moved to the farm outside of Mervine, I went to Mervine Primary School and um, I just remember progressively getting darker when I got there because it's a really sunny, warm place. Mm. Um, And we lived on a farm, so I was outside all the time. Um, But I felt like when I joined this school, I didn't really – I couldn't seem to find friends. (laughs) And I just remember maybe after two years, I had sort of forged a bit of a friendship with two girls um, and we would – you know, play together and our parents were very aware of, aware of it. My parents were thrilled that I found some friends. 
But I remember I was sitting in um, in the library and they just went silent on me one day and they just went, they just weren't talking and I said um, something along the lines of, I'm just wondering like, is, is it, like is something wrong? I must have been maybe eight at that time and I said, is there, did I do something? <laughs> and they said, they were very hesitant, they were very, giving me silent treatment and they eventually, one of them eventually said to me, our parents told us that we shouldn't be friends with you. And I said, okay. And I didn't feel the need to cry or anything like that. I was just like, okay. I feel the need to cry. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I did eventually ask them, I said, why? Why did they, like, why? And they said, because you have dark skin. And my, <laughs> I have to show a photo of you when I was younger. I, the Aboriginal children that came to the school, I was much darker than they were. And they, the Aboriginal children that went to the school had a lot of experiences. And um, yeah, they didn't want their kids to be friends with Aboriginal kids. They don't want their friends to be with anyone that has dark skin. Because goodness knows I might be Aboriginal. <laughs> um, anyway, so that was one of them. And then, I mean, we didn't really continue being friends from there. Um, and I just felt really alone. There was a lot of comment, like so many racial comments, a lot of racial comments about Aboriginal people, um, a lot of comments about Asian people. Um, it was normal. And the the teachers did not call it out. Teachers were not calling it out. And I also remember just, you know, the, and you don't even have to be look different to experience this, but the whole thing about like let's choose our team and if you're like the last one there, it's like, oh, it's great. <laughs> and I just remember one other time I had a teacher in year grade five and she said, she would do these weird things. She would do these little activities and be like, um, okay, it's home time. Like whoever, I just remember she said, like if you've got blonde hair, you can go home. If you've got freckles, you can go home. Oh. <laughs> and I was like the last person there. And this teacher, she used to skip me. You know how in, in school they would go through the class? She would skip me. Oh, God. So... Yeah, um, there was that. There were these those things that were going on, um, and um, there were lots of things that went on. And I think I really took it upon myself that it was normal for me to be treated like shit, mm. and it can affect you a lot when you're a teenager. Oh hell yeah, yeah, and. You know, there's obviously that um, meant that I had some experiences as well. Um, and just in relationships, you know, the tolerance for how people treat you is um, it's very different than what it should be. But it's taken a lot of time for me to work through it and acknowledge it 
and keep it at bay. Um, but it's common. I know I recognise it's really common. Mm. It's not just something I've experienced. Thank you for telling us that. That's fucking shit. <laughs> and I fucking hate that you had to go through that. Your You had friends and they didn't see you as any different and then because of their parents they began to see you as different. That's just... That yeah. exact thing happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember knowing that the mother of one of the girls didn't want her daughter to be friends with me. Isn't that horrible? Like yeah. the the sad thing about it is you, you know, you kind of are more willing to be accepting of that kind of behaviour from kids, but it's terrible when it comes from adults who should mm. know better, mm. but are ingraining racism in their children. Yeah. From yeah, from primary school, yeah. In a being biracial first, I just cried. <laughs> <laughs> I've never cried during an interview before. That was the first time. Yeah, it's some serious like sore spots, and mm. yeah, there's lots of things in life that really like trigger you. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite an effort to like, keep them at bay <laughs> at times. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I think I didn't remember that. I think that's why I cried because I don't think I remembered that story about the mother until you started talking about it. And I was like, fuck, that happened to me too. And I don't even have it in the narrative in my head of all the racist shit that has happened in my life, you know? I've just put that in a box somewhere, clearly, until this exact moment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's. It's just fucked. It's fucked out here. Um, <laughs> I yeah. Now I feel like I need to go burn off some of that bitterness. Uh, <laughs> we've talked a lot about where you don't feel accepted. I'm wondering where you do feel accepted, or are you carving that space out for yourself? That's a great question. I feel like I'm carving it out for myself. I feel like I've done a lot of time feeling very much like I need to feel like I identify as both Filipino and Hungarian. But now I just, I think really, really recently, um, I felt like it's, it's something inhuman. Like I think it's very natural for the environment that we've all grown up in and a lot of things that have happened over time in history that have have made us feel the need to attach ourselves to groups. Like it's a bit of herd mentality but a lot of Mm. like nationalism and patriotism that makes a lot of like tension of us being like we have to belong to this group and that's where we feel safe. And I'm finding the space where I feel really safe in just being myself and not even, and just removing even all of the labels about me being Hungarian and Filipino and my dad's from here and blah, 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 my mum's this and blah, blah, blah. And just being like, okay, I'm a human being and I like to do these things and these are my beliefs. And, you know, even completely detaching from religion and being a free human being. It's wonderful and it's really peaceful. So that's where I was saying I needed to burn off a lot of bitterness over 
probably to throughout my 20s, I think, um, and a bit of like late teens as well, um, where I feel like I'm at a place where it's very natural for me to feel connected to other people that might look like me, and but it's also really limiting. Mm. Um, and, yeah, like just giving everyone a shot and if people say something and it's like all these little microaggressions and, you know, you have a choice of whether or not you pick your battles to talk it through or you just go, okay, like you're not my people and that's fine. Mm. But not to be bitter about it. Um, so, yes, that's that's how I feel. But at the same time, I do feel like um, – I I still have so many beautiful memories connected to food. Like my dad isn't with us anymore um, in this life. So I have a lot of connections through food that really make me feel like I can remember him in silence. Um, so I feel like a lot of my connection to culture is more personal and it's more like my connection to my loved ones um, and it's more private whereas mm. before maybe I felt the need to express it more to express it more externally. I think that's a really lovely way for us to finish up the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming in. You've really laid it all out there in a way that we're so grateful for. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I felt really um, safe and connected to you both too. So thank you for doing this podcast. And thanks for talking to me about tennis. We <laughs> <laughs> uh, can go get a, a coffee. <laughs> we can continue. Thank you for listening to Being Biracial. This podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by us, Kate Robinson and myself, Maria Birch-Mordonga. Just two women out here making a podcast. The music that you're listening to is by The Green Twins, and this is our amazing song, Take It Slow. You can find it wherever you listen to your music. This work was developed on the lands of the Kulin Nation, and this project is supported through the Maribyrnong City Council Community Grants Program and the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. We also want to shout out Auspicious Arts for all their help. And also Footscray Community Arts, our original home um, and the place that gave us the space to even think about creating this podcast. Thank you so much. We love hearing from you. You can find us on Instagram at beingbiracialpodcast or send us an email at beingbiracialpodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could leave us a review. It really helps put our podcast out there into the world. And it's one of the best ways to support us at the moment. And if you like this episode, why not subscribe? Bye. Bye.